This podcast is dedicated to those that are in the mix, making it happen, and want to do better, better at everything. Each episode, our guest will help us be better, do better, and perform better. We will tackle topics that we all deal with in business and in life. Welcome back to The Wireless Way. I'm glad you found another episode to listen to. And today, I'm really excited to have a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. Uh, the channel, the indirect sales, selling through partnerships, relationship selling, whatever you want to call it. Today, we tackle the whole idea of making channel sales work. And today's guest is an expert on that, and we're going to jump right in. So buckle up and enjoy and be prepared to take notes. Welcome to The Wireless Way. I'm your host, Chris Whitaker. And today it's my privilege and, and quite a pleasure to have a gentleman on the show from, uh, from across the pond for me, I should say, Marcus Kalki. Uh, he is an accomplished trainer, author, consultant, podcast host, and speaker. He's also the board member for White Rabbit Intel and has been a CRO for numerous sales organizations. He resides in Sandhurst, England, and is my guest today. Welcome, Marcus. How are you doing? I'm very well, Chris. Thank you for having me. And I am so grateful that I reached out to you that you so quickly and graciously replied and agreed to be on uh, The Wireless Way. So thank you for that again. And it's my pleasure. You're one of about five people who've read my book, so I'm always grateful. <laughs> well, I bought like 10 of them for my team at a previous organization, and uh, and I tried very hard to get uh, some type of budget to actually do a training, but doing the book, we would, we would actually – pick a chapter and on our team sales calls, I would ask my team members, you know, Hey, one, did you read the chapter I asked you to? And what are your comments on us? We kind of, we did a very long book club uh, process, if you will. And it was very helpful because I had a very green team and they really benefited from it well. So again, thank you for that. Looking at your, your bio and, and, you know, I encourage all my listeners to go check you out on LinkedIn and I'll have the links to your material in the show notes. But tell us a little bit more about the, the journey you've traveled and you know how did you get to where you are today as this channel sells uh, or sells in general expert? Um, I did a degree in Middle Eastern studies um, as an alternative uh, to doing a history degree. Um, so that was four years of watching spaghetti hoops run across a page in a hungover haze whilst avoiding work. <laughs> Um, and then I kind of fell into sales because um, I did a stint over in the Middle East as part of my degree and decided it was way too hot. Um, so I uh, realized that I wasn't going to spend my career there. And I um, started out with a precursor to uh, talking pages, which is a bit like yellow pages, but um, over the phone. And um, really uh, enjoyed my work there. Uh, but unfortunately, the company folded. The CEO had a nervous breakdown and whatever. Um, and then I did 10 years in recruitment um, and very quickly realized that uh, you did the same amount of work or less for selling bigger deals. So started moving up from graduate recruitment to senior executive hires and executive search. And um, throughout, I've always been trying to uh, stay ahead of the curve. So I was the first recruiter in Europe to specialize in recruiting around the um, advent of the single currency, the euro. Um, And we made a bit of a killing on that. 
um, and then uh, moved into software sales, uh, built up a great pipeline. 9-11 happened, went to pot overnight, um, did um, a couple of other bits and pieces, ran a telemarketing company and stumbled across this system called Sandler on my first clients on my first day. Um, and after about a week of applying these CDs, um, realized that it was a fabulous way to sell. And it was based on really good psychological principles. It's based on transactional analysis and uh, understanding human beings is what all salespeople and all marketers should really concentrate on. Um, technique on its own is like giving someone a, just a metal club. Um, but when you understand the psychology and you have bias safety at the heart of everything that you do, um, then that uh, club becomes a razor's sharp blade. Um, and uh, so I've spent the last 18, 19 years really developing a uh, philosophy that we have the, the customer is at the heart of everything that we do. And bias safety is at the center of that, which means that we must always be relevant. We must always be of service and we have to earn their trust. And um, we need to operate with rigorous authenticity. So that means we have to be vulnerable and be ready to walk away from business. Even if we could set, make the sale, we need to be ready to say, you know, Chris, um, I think you'd be better going with my competitor. Um, we need to be ready to enter into constructive conflict um, because partners um, make each other better. And I believe that the best way to sell is with partnership skills. And we have to communicate with absolute clarity. We need to put the customer's outcome before our own. We have to operate win-win or no deal. And we've got to roll up our sleeves and get down and dirty in the trenches with them, helping them solve their problems, achieve their outcomes, help them implement their strategy. And that's what partnership is about. It's about mutual respect. And it's always, always, always about delivering their outcomes. So um, in October 2021, I left Sandler in order to set up on my own. Um, and now I'm a fractional chief revenue officer for a number of tech companies and my uh, big hairy goal is to take eight companies to a billion dollar turnover, but grow them properly, not have the wheels come off, um, not grow, go after growth for growth's sake, um, but build fundamentally strong businesses with highly engaged employees and customers for life and profitable. Wow. No, yeah. Well, that you said a couple of things there that caught my attention. First, I want to point out the one thing that, you know, for the last several years and over here in my industry, I, I probably worldwide, customer experience was such a big topic. And then you corrected me in one of our pre-show discussions going, no, Chris, it's customer outcomes. And uh, I just love that because it really does change the way you look at the whole transaction from, you know, initial conversation to closing the deal to delivering the goods and, and all that stuff. So I really love that. And something you also said in your last few sentences was about, you know, helping companies to build a sales organization where the wheels don't come off and that they're profitable. Uh, share with us a little bit. I mean, what are some common mistakes that companies make that cause the wheels to come off? The first thing 
is they don't put the customer front and center in everything they do. We exist because of, not in spite of the customer. Um, and customers deserve biosafety. And what biosafety means is they need to know that they can trust us. They need to know that we have their best interests at heart, first and foremost, and that we are of service. That doesn't mean servitude. It Actually, it, um, one of the things we wrote about in the book, but I fundamentally believe, is that you always have equal business stature with your prospect and with your partners. And so um, you need to make sure that the ground rules are clear. Um, now, most organizations in sales are fixated on transactions. Uh, my pal Barnaby Winter taught me something very recently, which I really like. You don't have customers. You no longer talk about them as customers. They're paying prospects. Now, if you shift your mindset that you always have to stay ahead of the curve, you've got you always working to keep and grow and develop their business. Um, and you work in partnership. And again, really good book by Fred Copestake called Selling with Partnering Skills is a must read. And in there, they, uh, he's developed something called the, par um, the Partnering Quotient, um, which is a test to see how well uh, you sell using partnering skills. R a must read. Um, now, what most organizations do, particularly private organizations, which I, if befuddles me, um, is why does a private organization need to work on quarterly reporting cycles that then drives uh, salespeople and driven by their managers and their idiot bosses uh, to try and buy business and pressure customers uh, into uh, making a decision before they're ready. Now, the reason salespeople do that is because they don't have enough in their pipeline, because the emphasis um, of most uh, sales organizations and the way CRM drives behavior is you've got the manager pounding the table uh, saying, make more dials, get more meetings, send out more proposals, do more demos. As soon as an opportunity gets put into the CRM, the focus goes from building the pipeline to close date. And no one pays attention to the middle of the funnel, which is why you end up with uh, sales funnels that look like an old pair of granny knickers instead of um, like a, a thong. They need to be wide at the top and you disqualify, 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 and anything that gets to the bottom um, is qualified, and you need choice. So what most organizations do is they focus on lagging indicators. They focus on dial rates, call rates. They uh, focus on number of leads, uh, MQLs, SQLs. They focus on uh, demos. They focus on proposals and quotes. And they uh, measure um, stuff that doesn't really allow um, a salesperson to adjust their trajectory, revenue, profit. Those are all important metrics, but that's not the stuff a salesperson should be uh, focusing on measuring. There are four metrics I would recommend every salesperson and every manager, whether you're direct or through selling through the channel. The one is daily, unique, effective conversations. And in most of the businesses, in your business, in my business, it needs to average somewhere between five and seven every single day. No excuses, no avoidance, no blame, no whining, moaning, bitching, or grumbling. You've got to have those five to seven conversations because you've got to fill the top of the hopper. Um, the next is deal velocity. It's the pace at which opportunities move through the funnel and go from suspect 
to prospect, to qualified prospect, to closable prospect, to closed, then into the paying prospect cycle because um, the best customers are the ones you've already sold to. And they cost between six and 21 times less to sell to than new business. But the channel, for example, is perceived as the gingerhead, uh, illegitimate, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. Um, you've got uh, account management is seen as being something lesser than new business. But new business is the, the glamorous golden child. Uh, but it's expensive. Why, why would you let people through the front door and then let them out the back door when you've invested all that time, money, effort, blood, sweat, resources? You know, the statistics are terrifying. Um, on average, it takes 33 dials to get one effective, unless you're calling a senior executive in IT, in which case it's one in 46. So on average, manual dialing, you're making about 15 dials an hour. So it could take you three hours or longer to get one effective. On average, 14 effectives required to get one meeting. And one in seven, sorry, one in eight uh, first meetings result in a second meeting. Surely we should be asking ourselves better questions, like what do we need to do in order to reduce um, the amount of effort and time that it takes to uh, get an effective? Well, one of the things that you can do is you can arbitrage cleaning of the list so you can identify picker-uppers. Picker-uppers are people who pick up. If they pick up once, they're more likely to pick up again than people who don't. Now, if your list is cleaned in that way, then you can reduce the one in 33 to maybe one in six or one in eight. Then uh, arbitrage the dial to uh, an organization that outsources the initial uh, dial out so that your salespeople are speaking to five or six decision makers an hour instead of one every three hours. Because when you look at the statistics around uh, the amount of time salespeople actually spend speaking to living, breathing human beings who can make a decision, it's you know, often the range is between 12 and 21%. That's between one in five and one in eight hours. They're actually speaking to real-life prospects. Um, many of them just treat uh, uh, their ICP as if it's fixed. I came across a company a couple of weeks ago that hadn't changed their ideal customer profile for 30 years. Your ideal customer profile shifts subtly almost every month. And with a, an event like COVID, um, it's going to shift dramatically. And when people come back off the lockdowns, you're going to end up with customers who are very different. Their attitudes are different. Their values are different. Their uh, outcomes are different. Their requirements are different. And if you haven't modified your ICP, um, chances are you're going to be wasting a lot of time talking, to, interrupting people who have no interest in what you have. Um, management doesn't care. Uh, yeah, you're, you're spot on. You had mentioned the four things. Oh, yeah, the four things. So um, uh, five unique effective, deal velocity. Um, the third one is having three to five times more at the qualified moving to closable stage. And I'll describe what those are in a second. And the fourth one is the uh, conversion rate of first qualified meeting to second qualified meeting. 
where I've implemented that within my clients, we on average have a variance against forecast of between half and 5% within three months. Now, I've never worked in an organization prior to learning this uh, that had accuracy rates of above uh, below 10%. Uh, often, I mean, when I was in recruitment, it could be 80% either way. Um, so it's really, it's really important that you understand the difference. Wow. So a suspect is anyone with a pulse who can still fog a mirror. And they will go into the forecast at 0% weighting. Now, a prospect, and this is going to upset a lot of your audience, Okay. A prospect is someone who is in your target market, has a problem you can genuinely fix today. None of this blue sky drivel that salespeople tend to talk about, it's in the roadmap. It needs to be fixable today. You must be speaking to a decision maker who is both able and more importantly willing to invest the time, the money, the resources and allow you the access you need to the people and estate and information in order to qualify. Uh, you must be speaking to a decision maker who is both able and willing to make the decision to buy, and they must be working towards a clearly defined timetable to break ground on the project and to realize the value that they are looking for, the outcome that they're looking for. Now, that goes in at 10% weighting. Now, most people would consider that to be a qualified uh, deal ready to land. It's not. The next level is a qualified prospect, and uh, that needs all five of those criteria, and at least 70% of the answers you need have been given to you, and that goes in at 30%. And then you have a closable prospect who goes in at 95% probability. There's always some room for acts of war and acts of God and whatever, um, and they have answered 100% of the questions uh, across the entire buying committee. Now, one of the big reasons why um, companies are failing is lack of coverage. Pre-COVID, in companies of under 200 people, there are about three and a half decision makers, and the average salesperson only spoke to uh, about 1.7 influencers. When you get up to 1,000, that number was six and a half to seven, uh, and the average coverage was 1.65 influencers. Since COVID, that's gone up to about 11. So if you're selling to complex organizations, big ticket deals, you need to have multiple threads. But what does mm. the sales manager do? Make more dials, get more new uh, leads at the top of the pipeline, not nurture the ones that you've got, that middle of the pipeline. They're not coaching. They compensate to drive transactional behavior, right. not to drive good salesmanship. Excellent. Now, that's some great feedback. I think you're right. Uh, it's going to be a mixed response from the audience. Some are going to be clapping and applauding and others questioning maybe, but that's that's the way it goes. You know, so in your book, Making Channel Sales Work, uh, chapter one is called The Perfect Partnership. I know you probably touched on some of it already, but kind of unpack that for us. What do you mean by the perfect partnership when it comes to making channel sales work? Well, the first thing you need to look at is if your partners aren't, uh, if your partnerships aren't working, look in the mirror first. 
Um, are you communicating clearly internally and externally? Uh, do you always keep your word? Um, is the team working towards a win-win for everyone or ready to walk away with a no deal? Uh, do you punish failure? Are, are you adjusting your plans um, based on the lessons learned so you're not repeating your mistakes? Are you pre-call planning? Are you rehearsing? Are you post-call debriefing? Um, you know, that, that's one of the first things. And what you need to understand is if you're going to get in bed together, um, you know, before you get in bed, make sure that you're a good fit. Um, so you need to be sure that um, you should be putting a ring on each other's finger. Um, you know, can you put a logo on their office door or are they so small um, that you can't? Um, is someone other than the owner or the CEO the top salesperson? Uh, when you ask them how they get new business, they say, oh, we get it all by referral. Well, do they have a system or do referrals come in as a nice surprise from left field? Um, do they have the right kind of reputation? Are they more technical than sales in terms of their culture? Um, are you compatible and complementary? Or do you reckon that their needs and your needs, they just don't coalesce? Um, are they easy to deal with from the start? Are they willing to let you talk to their customers? Uh, do their salespeople ask you good questions that go beyond the product? Um, uh, will they let you onboard them? Um, and this is really important. Will they let you train their salespeople as if they are your own? Um, will they do regular pipeline review meetings with you? Um, do you both agree what good looks like? And do you know what they are trying to achieve so you can help them achieve their business ambitions? But almost nobody goes through that process. What they do is they go to exhibitions and events, and then they sign up as many as humanly possible, and then they put them onto their portal and nothing happens. Now, if you haven't helped a partner generate their second deal within the first 90 days or at least filled the pipeline up with a really good prospect, um, the second prospect, uh, in the first 90 days, they go dark on you. Now, on average, only 2 to 4% of partners produce 40 to 60% of the revenue of most vendors. So it doesn't make any sense to build this land army. What really makes sense is to build a special forces unit and help them become wildly successful. Now, that's fascinating. Great explanation of that chapter. And now, so I guess yeah, I thought we kind of touched on it as well, you know, a proper channel program. What value does it bring to a sales organization? You know, when you have some direct sales leaders that all they know is direct sales and they're kind of anti-channel and you kind of put it so eloquently earlier that most channel uh, programs are considered, you know, illegitimate almost. So where, what, are, what are companies missing out on? by choosing not to have a indirect channel program? Well, first of all, what they're getting is massive fixed overhead and a management headache. Um, they're restricting their ability to scale at pace globally, um, and they are suffering from the not invented here, let's do it ourselves syndrome. Your success in the future will be dependent on your ability to collaborate. If you're in tech and you don't know how to collaborate, frankly, you are a dinosaur. You, you will go the way of the dinosaur as well. 
look at how complex uh, tech stacks are. In cyber, uh, you might have 12 to 20 vendors all involved in the, um, a bank's technology stack just around security. Um, if you can't play nicely with the competition, if you can't play nicely with other uh, partners, frankly, you're just a bit player. Uh, you might get the odd win here and there, uh, but you're largely an irrelevance. Um, so if you want to if you want to play big on the world stage, you better get used to the idea um, that you need to partner. Um, I, I've worked with companies that are growing eighty percent a quarter globally. And it's a five hundred million dollar turnover business. Applying what they uh, what we wrote about in the book, they're growing eighty percent a quarter. Now you cannot possibly do that trying to build a direct sales force. I mean, just think of the tariff that takes, uh, the toll that takes in terms of recruitment, onboarding, training, management, and just provisioning them with their kit. It does not make sense to do that. But find great partners and uh, help them be immensely successful. Train them as if they're on your payroll. Uh, work with them, create a culture of uh, mutual accountability, regular cadence of communication. Because channel sales is the hardest job there is in sales, bar none. Um, When you think about it, uh, a channel manager could be wearing any one of 90 different hats in a given day. Okay? Um. And they, they've got to manage yes. strategy and design. Um, they have to find and recruit partners. They have to enable and develop them. They have to drive incentives, and they have to tap into their motivations. They have to co-sell and co-market. They have to manage and report. And they could be wearing 15 of those hats by 3 o'clock on a Monday. Um, it's a difficult job. Um, and the qualities that yep. make a great channel manager are closer to a general manager than they are a sales manager. And channel chiefs are much closer in profile to a CEO, the effective ones, than they are to a VP of sales. It's a tough, tough job. And it requires a lot of thinking. You got that right. I mean, I've uh, I spent half of my career on the direct sales side and quickly realized uh, a lot of my sales success as a direct sales person was because I was partnering with different vendors and influencers in, in the industry. And the minute I had a chance to become an official channel manager for a channel program, I jumped on it and changed my life. And then I just realized how much more advanced it was. Because, yeah, you you know you have to be a marketing expert, a legal expert, a finance expert, um, event planner, you know, relationship expert. There's, there's a lot of things in there. And I am so grateful for the things that I've learned and the people that I've learned from uh, one, one of your chapters in the book really caught my eye was the channel manager rights. And, you know, because that's such a I was like, wow, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We have rights. <laughs> so, what, what, did you, what prompted you to write that chapter? Well, uh, I've always taught salespeople, you know, I've asked them, what rights do you have? And uh, most of them, their jaw hits the ground and they drool a little. And what do you mean? We don't have rights. And Well, actually, you do. Um, There are three myths. The customer is king, the buyer is always right, and the man with the gold makes a rule. Okay? None of those are true. The customer is never more or less than your equal. 
Uh, the buyer is very often wrong. Unfortunately, often they're wrong because of something we've said or done um, or haven't said or done. Um, and uh, the person with the gold doesn't make the rules. They're the one with the commodity. Um, and part of the problem here is that if you don't know you have rights, when someone rides roughshod over them, you'll let them. But if you understand that you do have rights, then um, you can stand up for them. So um, make sure that you understand what your rights are, okay? Um, and these are that, you know, if you ask a question, it's worth getting an answer to the question you've actually asked. Um, you have the right to ask and be asked tough questions. And sometimes you won't get the answer you were hoping for. Um, and um, you, you've got the right to agree up front what it is that each of you expects. Uh, we had a lovely quote in by Norman Cousins. Wisdom consists of the anticipation of consequences. And I, th I think too few people plan ahead. They wing it. So they don't know what their expectations are on either side. They don't communicate clearly how often, by what means, how regularly, um, uh, how do you escalate unresolved problems, um, how frequently do you meet, um, when you're working with salespeople, do you get to select the salespeople you work with? Um, uh, what are your deal registration criteria? You know, what systems are you going to use? Um, how are you going to train their people? Not only their salespeople, but their technical specialists, their consultants, their customer success people. Um, are you going to share a sales methodology? So you need to understand that. You need to understand and agree the targets and the pipeline uh, objectives up front, payment terms, account management terms. You need to operate as equals. You've got different roles, but the problem is that very often, um, if you're not uh, operating as equals, then what you end up with is an imbalance. So, um, you know, Mark Twain said it beautifully, always tell the truth, that way you don't have to remember anything. Um, and I think you need to tell each other when you're not happy, when it's not working. Um, as a channel manager, you have the right to engage the end user. But most channel managers have uh, behave in such a way that partners have no reason to trust them. Um, you have the right to prospect together. And most people don't like prospecting, but you've got to fill the pipeline. It's the lifeblood of your business, whether you're direct or channel. Um, you, you've got to make sure that um, you honor agreements. You've got to make sure that there are rights on both sides. Because that, you know, the, the, if, if you're going to work as a partner, helping each other to get better, then you need to have that uh, relationship that is based on adult-to-adult -adult communication and trust, knowing that the other person has your best interests at heart. And by getting your needs met, they get their needs met too. Absolutely. And that's kind of the definition of a partnership is bi-directional. It has to go both ways. And you're right, I've worked with some very successful partners, but they were very yeah. demanding and we're going to do it my way. And, and, and you said it earlier, the re reason I believe they're that way is that 
previous channel managers let them down and didn't take a leadership role or didn't have a mutual respect kind of partnership. So on that note, we talked about the channel manager rights. And it's probably fair to say, because a lot of our listeners are channel partners, they're the sub agents and, and partners, their rights are somewhat mirrored. They have what, what rights should a partner expect uh, from a uh, channel manager? Uh, great question. Well, I think um, they uh, should feel safe. They should feel that the uh, channel manager is partner-centric, that the partner manager um, is putting the partner's outcomes above his or her own. They need to have trust and relevance and service. Um, They need to make sure that uh, they always tell the truth, um, that they do what they say they're going to do, And they don't make promises just to people, please. They set clear expectations with their partners. Um, Until such time as the partner has proven through their behavior that um, you are going to uh, let them uh, engage with and know who uh, the end customer is. Um, One thing my pal Zach Seltz, now Zach has built over a thousand partnerships over the last 35 years. Uh, responsible for tens, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uh, international sales. And what he used to do in order to build that trust was say, okay, don't give me the name, assign them a number. And that way he could coach them on how to get those deals over the line. And after four or five of those conversations, they just said, you know, have the names because they knew that they could trust him. Um, And so Uh, Another thing that a partner must expect of the vendor uh, channel manager is they will never overstep the uh, the bounds of the relationship um, because the partner is taking the vendor into um, people that they have spent years or decades nurturing those relationships. How dare a channel manager go round them uh, or over them? Um, But again, if the partner is blocking, then the channel manager has the right to confront it. So you need to have an escalation process established right at the beginning of the partnership uh, where uh, the vendor can engage with the executive team um, within the uh, the partner. But again, very few uh, do anything like that. And what you also need to know is that the vendor's leadership supports the channel. They don't see them as a get-out-of-sales-free card. They don't see them as a ginger-haired, ugly stepdaughter. Yeah. Yeah? They see them as an integral part to their business. Absolutely. And that's some great words. I hope a lot of my channel partner and channel manager colleagues out there will take note of that and definitely check out the book. That's that's the best way to get the rest of the details. as we kind of wrap it up, and I, I, we could go on for hours on this topic, and, and I wish we could, but unfortunately, you know, we, we have other day jobs that <laughs> we, we have to attend to. Um, what else is going on in your world? I know you have some new projects you're working on. You have a new podcast. What else are you doing besides uh, uh, talking about making channel sales work? Well, I, I'm running um, the sales, marketing, and customer success operations for a number of tech companies. Um, I'm launching a a global sales community called Sales, a Force for Good. Um, I'm disgusted that in uh, 2020, December 2020, a study came out from McKinsey 
that said 67% of buyers consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt. 30% of B2B buyers want a 100% seller-free buying experience. Now, that's an indictment on our profession. I love sales. I love salespeople. Um, But we have earned that because there are too many people out there who are too transactional, they're self-centered, don't put the customer first, um, and lots of managers who don't. um, Sandler did a research study in 2020 as well, um, and they found only 6% of sales managers are fit for purpose. 6%. And the reason for that is most sales managers were successful salespeople who got tapped on the shoulder and told, Chris, you are one, with no runway. So what the community is all about is creating the conditions for the next generation of salespeople and future sales leaders so they never have to do that, that um, we start creating best practices. We start tackling every month. Um, the gnarly, difficult problems associated with why sales has earned that reputation and really turn sales into an aspirational career choice. Now, I, I want kids saying uh, when they're a five-year-old, I want to be a salesperson. God, I love it. You know, it reminds me of a book I read called The Samurai Salesman years ago, and it kind of had the same premise because the samurai was dedicated to serving the emperor. And, uh, of course, the premise of the book was, you know, the the, the – Qualified prospect, you know, uh, would be uh, the the emperor, and you know, we we should, you know, be willing to serve them up, up to the point of death, almost, just to make them, you know, uh, to solve the problem, have a positive outcome. What else could you leave? Any other wise uh, tips that are advice you can share with us in terms of making channel sales work? Any last thoughts? Well, in terms of the channel, I think what you should be doing is looking to recruit um, a handful of special forces partners. And when you recruit them, then onboard them really carefully. Uh, The first 120 days, like an employee, a new employee is putting the company on probation. Is this a job I was sold? Do I like my boss? Um, Can I do this job? Was I better off elsewhere? Will I be better off somewhere else? Um, Do I like the customers? So that 120-day onboarding process needs to be systematically planned out. So it answers the following questions. What do my partners need to know? By when do they need to know it? Where can they find the information about it? How will it be measured? What are the consequences of not doing that by this time in the 120-day cycle. Um, And uh, how will we measure? How will we reward? And make sure that over that 120 days, there's learning and there's doing. And the balance starts out more heavily learning, and by the end, you want them to be autonomous. Um, And I wouldn't take on too many partners at any one time. Really wouldn't take on more than three, maybe four in a trimester. Um, so work on trimester, take on four, um, and then work that 120 day cycle and then bring on your next four and your next four. But when you finish the 120 day cycle, then start again with the next intake of their salespeople so that it's a constant cycle. I, I firmly believe and all the best channel managers I know spend 70% plus of their time 
in their partner's business, helping them design their strategy, their go-to-market, develop their messaging, prospecting side-by-side with them, training, coaching, at least you know, um, uh, one um, uh, coaching session per rep per week. You can't do that with hundreds of uh, partners. You can only do that with a handful. Um, and what we know from the direct sales world is that uh, reps that are coached three to three and a half hours a month have an average quota attainment of 105%. Reps coached less than that have an average quota attainment of around 40 to 60%. Coaching is a superpower for everyone in the management. Oh, no, you, you're, you're spot on. Again, that's another skill channel managers also need to have is coaching their partners, and they need to be coached by, by their leadership. But, you know, I'm thinking about channel programs Absolutely. that have channel managers that cover huge territories, you know, dozen-plus states. At that point, you're just herding cats. It's really – it's almost impossible for them to do what you just said because – just to manage the the flow of quote requests and inquiries is almost like a call center. It's a full time job because they have so many states to cover, right? But that, yeah, but that that basically becomes an administrative function. That that that's what a sales support uh, unit uh, should be doing. Um, that's what the the partners should be handling um, with their uh, their response teams. Um, the channel manager's job is to make the partner successful. It's not to be a glorified administrator. And the problem is that when most channel managers phone up their partners, it goes something like this. Hi, Chris, what do you got for me this month? Nothing great, I'll speak to you next. And it's just an interruption. Every touch needs to be timely, needs to be relevant, and needs to deliver value to the individual that you are speaking to. If you behave in that manner, then they will always pick up the phone to you. But the problem is, the minute they start seeing the caller ID of the uh, the other type of channel manager, those just get right. uh, shoved straight through to voicemail. And then the, then the channel manager spends 80% of their working life chasing people that they should have contacted or uh, had some meaningful interaction with on the last call. But they're being avoided and ghosted. Be a be a channel manager that people want to have a relationship with you. And in, in order to do that, you have to add value, right? You need to help solve problems and, and be responsive and and all of those things. And yeah, that's a whole topic. I was having a conversation with a colleague that is upset because you know she thought she wanted more territory. I'm like, well, you got like 17 states. I mean, uh, how are you going to go deep and wide with certain partners when you're just being inundated with all this? A flurry of activity that doesn't necessarily equate to revenue. So, um, yeah, I, I mentioned I mentioned Zach Selch earlier on, and uh, he has a maxim, which is the only way out of his network is in a box. He is still doing business with people from thirty two, thirty five years ago. Wow! <laughs> and these are even competitors refer business to him because he's a man of his word. And channel managers really need to have a very high level of cultural awareness and adaptability as well. Uh, He's worked in, I think there's 140-plus countries, and he always gets to know the culture. He gets to know the nuances of how business is done. Now, in the post-COVID era, um, there are sales reps out there who think that their superpower is breathing someone else's air and drinking their coffee. Ain't going to happen. 
Okay. Um, we, we've got variants. We've got SARS now kicking off uh, and goodness knows what else. Um, this is going to become more and more commonplace. We've found out that we can work virtually. You can have incredible reach using technology and being absolute ruthless, uh, absolutely ruthless about calendar blocking and making sure that you're managing the time you have available and the behavior within the time you have available because you can't manage time. It was here first and it doesn't give a damn. Okay. Um, but what you have to do is be disciplined and you have to be structured and organized. And you've got to think like a general, not a private. A private has their nose to the map. The general is the other side of the room um, and they're seeing the bigger picture. And so my forecast is this, that future CEOs will come out of the channel because they see the whole picture. They see the, the entirety Absolutely. of the business. And they have to have those skills to be a CEO, to be a channel chief. That's where I think the future great CEOs will come from. Well, Marcus, I hope I can have you back on the show in the future. I think we, you know, as I look back over this conversation, I can think of uh, several other areas we could have gone down. Uh, but I'm so grateful for our time today. And I just appreciate the, the nuggets of wisdom. And I think, you know, the, the audience is going to really enjoy this. And, and then, you know, if you're listening, uh, please contact me at Chris, the wirelessway.net. Love to get your feedback. And of course, leave any reviews at the wirelessway.net website or on Facebook. Marcus, again, thank you, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Chris. You know, when you make a podcast, there's a rule that the podcast should be no longer than it has to be. This one could have gone on a little longer, actually. It's a very deep topic, making channel sales work, adding value through relationship selling and learning and growing from each other. So I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope it added value. If you'd like to hear more about making channel sales work, I would love to get your feedback or uh, any requests you have, and I could get Marcus back on and and we can dive into that. So again, thanks for listening. Please like and follow and share this podcast with your network. Again, I appreciate you listening.